amazing what these things do. Anyway, I want to add another announcement. And that is uh, because I have special interest. But the uh, women's soccer team is playing their first game tonight. They are playing uh, away. They're in Chapman. Uh, but um, you guys need to uh, come to their games this season. Uh, as I say, I have special interest. They have a daughter who's playing on the team. So I'm going to be out there. I've already told my department that uh, my office hours are on the soccer field when they're playing. So if any of you need to see me, you'll know where to, where to find me. But uh, come out and support them, if you would. They're a great bunch of people. Today we're going to talk about probably the most, well, one of the most famous events in all of the Bible. If you have been in Sunday school, you have heard this story many times. If you have taught Sunday school, you have taught it undoubtedly at least once. You are familiar with the story, but I think it would be good if we look at it from a little different perspective. The story is found in Daniel chapter 3. Will you turn with me to that chapter? And we're going to talk about three young boys. I don't know if... Boy, this sounds really loud. Do I need to move this? Uh, we're going to talk about three young boys. These young boys are probably your age. So I want you to be able to identify with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because they are no older than many of you. I've heard it said that a Christian is like a tea bag. You find out what he's really like when he gets into some hot water. And you know there's a lot of truth to that. Bob Jones uh, said this. He said that a man was never made by a crisis. The crisis simply exposed the man for who he really was. That's a true statement. You don't go into a crisis seeking to be made in that crisis the crisis will simply tell everyone what you're really like. We're going to talk about a crisis this morning. This is a crisis that exposed three young men for who they really were, men of tremendous conviction, men of God. They wanted to obey him and him alone. The three young men, as I've said, were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, probably in their early 20s, somewhere between 20 and 25 years old, so approximately your age. These three, plus Daniel, had been taken captive at the age of 14 by King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now, can you imagine being 14 years old, being taken away from everything that is familiar? Familiar surrounding, familiar environment, family, friends. Everything familiar is taken away and you are transported due east some 600 miles or so to a, an unfamiliar city, an unfamiliar surrounding, an unfamiliar language, everything unfamiliar, and you're going to be trained by Nebuchadnezzar for three years and then you're going to serve for the rest of your life in his government. Can you imagine that? 
Can any of you handle that? Having been the age of 14, recognizing where you were and what you were like at the age of 14? Pretty phenomenal. And yet that's what happened. These four, Daniel and the three young boys, plus 70 or 75 other young people, were all transported at the age of 14 in 605 B.C. from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now it says in chapter 1, several things that would happen to them. It says what kind of youths they were in verse 4. It says that they were youths in whom was no defect. It says that they were showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom. It says they were endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge. And they had ability for serving in the king's court. These were the the upper crust, the top of the line, the very, very best. And here is what they would learn. A new literature, a new language. They would have to get new names, according to verse 7. And they would eat the king's food and drink the king's wine. Now, they had no problem with the literature, and they had no problem with the language, and they had no problem even getting a new name. But they did have a problem in eating the food and drinking the wine. The reason? It had been sacrificed to idols. And they had been told by God not to eat the food or drink the wine. And Daniel and his three friends wanted to obey. So Daniel makes up his mind that he's not going to do it. And he goes to the commander and he says, "Uh, Commander, I can't eat this. And he's speaking for his three friends. And he says, I can't eat this and I can't drink this. He says, will you uh, give us something else? And the commander is real scared because, you see, if Daniel and his three friends don't turn out healthy with the best food of the land and the best wine of the land, then uh, the commander is going to be killed. He says, I don't know what to do. So Daniel says, will you test us for ten days on veggies and water? He says, just test us for ten days. And it says, let our appearance be observed in your presence, verse 13, and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. And so he asked them to do a test for ten days. Now I ask you, can you see any dramatic change by eating veggies and water for ten days? I don't know if any of you have tried that, but I'm sure that you all or many of you have tried diets. Anything significant happen in 10 days? Well, maybe if you fasted for 10 days, but generally you're not going to see anything significant. Certainly you're not going to see anything significant in terms of the quality of the skin or whatever in 10 days. But notice what happened. They ate veggies and water for 10 days. And verse 15, at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better. That's certainly possible. And they were fatter. Now, anybody ever eaten veggies and water to gain weight? Not recently. I haven't. But here, God honored their commitment. 
And so for the rest of the three years, they ate veggies and water. Can you imagine? And they were healthy for the three years. It says at the end of the three years, uh, verse 18, which the king had specified, the king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and so they entered the king's personal service. And as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and the other 70 young people who were eating the food and drinking the wine. So here we have a commitment that Daniel and three friends made. God honored that commitment. And after three, three years, they went into the king's personal service. Well, as we look at chapter 3, it is several years later. When they finished chapter 1, they were 17 years old. It is now somewhere uh, five to eight years later. And as we begin chapter 3, we see that Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width six cubits, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So five to eight years later, after this incident, King Nebuchadnezzar makes this humongous statue. And the question is, why? What was he doing it for? Well, probably as a result of chapter 2, verse 38, which Daniel had interpreted a dream for him and said that he was the head of gold. And as a result, he made this image, probably of himself. And he was that gold statue. Now, 60 cubits, each a, a cubit is equal to a foot and a half. So 60 cubits is 90 feet high and nine feet wide. A cubit is measured from the elbow to the end of the finger, usually about 18 inches. This is a huge statue. And they said it was probably placed on some kind of a platform that would be another 20 feet. So you've got this statue that is about 110 feet high out here on this plain of Dura, right outside of Babylon, and he makes it for a very, very specific purpose. And then he says, he sends word to assemble all of his officials, satraps, prefects, Governors, counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and rulers, all different levels and types of officers. And he asks to assemble them. There may have been hundreds, maybe as many as are here. Seven, eight, nine hundred people. Maybe, maybe there were several thousand. We aren't sure. But we know there were several hundred people that were out there. Brings them all out to this, to this platform out to this plain of Dura, which is right outside the city of Babylon. And he tells them that at the sound of a number of instruments, they are to fall down and worship this golden beast, this image. So you got the picture? You got this huge statue? Everybody's out there. All his officials are out there. Daniel, and his, Daniel is gone. We don't know where he is. He's probably on some kind of a trip. But his three friends are there. The other 70 youths are there that had been taken in 605. You've got all the officials there. Everybody is there. Anybody who's anybody is there. 
And they all are going to bow down. Now, just to make it rather intimidating, he does something else. In verse 6, he says, Whoever does not fall down and worship this image shall immediately, just keep that word in your mind if you would, shall immediately be cast into the furnace of blazing fire. Where did the furnace come from? Well, he created it just for this situation. In other words, he had the furnace made and he had it sitting right next to the image. Can you get the picture? Everybody is standing and at the sound of all these instruments, they're going to bow down. And just in case anybody gets a second thought, you got this furnace that's heating away right here. Now, the furnace must be pretty hot and the furnace must be pretty large because it can handle, well, it handled at least four people. So we know it's large with an entrance at the top and an entrance on the side. Now you got the complete picture. So everybody's there, probably trembling, making sure they're going to stand, you know, they're going to bow when they need to bow and looking at that furnace and looking at the orders and waiting for the instruments and ready to bow. Okay? So that's the situation that surrounds this event. Verse 8. This is the test. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. And they responded and they said to Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever, which is a, a term of respect and a term of reverence. And they said, didn't you say that when the, all these instruments sounded, and by the way, uh, uh, when, listen to these instruments. It says the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and bagpipe. I don't know about you, I'm not, I'm not a, a music major, I don't have a good tune for music, but I, I, I'm just trying to figure out what it would sound like with all those instruments and the bagpipe. You know, that instrument is unique in itself. Uh, I'm just not sure. Maybe somebody can try it sometime. The point being, all these instruments were playing and they were to fall down and worship. And they said, Sir, didn't you say that they were all to fall down? And then he says, But whoever does not fall down will be cast in the furnace of blazing fire. Verse 11. And then these Chaldeans, they said to Nebuchadnezzar, there are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods, and they do not worship your golden image, which you have set up. Now, my question is, how do they know? They're supposed to be bowing down, worshiping the beast or the image. What did they do? Look up and, and look around to see who was standing? How did they know? I don't know how they knew. But apparently they must have snuck and looked up and seen three people that remained standing. Which must have been quite a sight. Because if we're talking about, say, uh, hundreds of people like yourselves here today, and you have three people that stayed standing... I mean, they would be quite visible, quite visible. That leads us to a very significant principle regarding the topic today, and that is conviction. 
very significant principle regarding conviction. Our moral and spiritual decisions are determined by one of two things, either external pressure or internal principle. You got that? All of our moral and spiritual decisions are determined either externally through the pressure of others or internally through principle. Many times we will justify our decision-making by saying it is internally motivated when really it was because of the pressure of friends, family, threat of punishment, whatever. And we need to be men and women who are willing to live based upon internal principle, not simply external pressure. Now, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego made a decision. They were convicted in their hearts of that decision. I don't know where they got that decision, but it wasn't something they just sort of felt. It was something that was internally motivated, trained by their parents, grew up in a godly home, whatever it may have been, they were internally motivated. They knew what they would do. They didn't have to think about it. That doesn't make it easy. It was a very difficult decision, but they knew what they were going to do. Now think about it. You are in this group. Look around and see how many people are here. Could you stand if everybody else bowed down? Could you stay standing knowing that if you stayed standing, you'd die? Could you do it? Remember, these three are no older than you. They stayed standing where all the other hundreds, maybe even thousands, bowed down, including the other 70 to 75 Jews, young Jews. Their decision wasn't an easy one. It was made even more difficult because Daniel wasn't around. They knew the punishment that awaited them. They were also playing into the hands of these jealous Chaldeans who had brought the charges. It was a difficult decision. They knew what awaited them. And yet they made that decision to stay standing. This leads us to five principles of conviction in this chapter that I think we need to get a handle on if we are to be men and women of conviction. Number one, a conviction is not something you discover, it is something you purpose. It's not something you discover, it is something you purpose, it is something you determine. Go back to Jan, uh, Daniel 1.8. Remember when uh, he was convicted not to eat the food or drink the wine? What does it say in verse 8? It says, well, Daniel felt like he shouldn't eat the food or drink the wine. Is that what it says? No. It says, Daniel purposed in his mind that he wasn't going to eat the food or drink the wine. Now, what if the commander of the official said, I'm sorry, but you've got to eat the food or drink the wine. There are no other options. What do you think Daniel would have done? 
He wouldn't have eaten the food and drink the wine. He would have starved to death if he had had to. Whatever God had planned, he was not going to do it, period. It says he purposed in his mind. Turn to Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Here's another example. You maybe remember the story of the Daniel in the lion's den. Medo-Persia had just taken over Babylon. Daniel was assigned one of the three top positions in the Medo-Persian government. Some of the people got jealous and didn't like that, so they asked the king to make a special decree that for just 30 days you couldn't worship anybody else except king, the king of, or the king of, of Medo-Persia. So what does Daniel do? Verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying before his God and giving thanks as he had been doing previously. Now, Daniel could have done a couple things. He could have shut the blinds. He could have done it in secret, right? So nobody could have seen him. He could have flaunted the the rule and he could have gone down on the street and he could have gathered everybody around and he could have knelt right there before God and say, hang you guys. I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing. He didn't do either. You know what he did? The same thing he'd always been doing. He purposed in his mind to do it. He wasn't going to change And you know the story. He was thrown into the den of lions and he survived because God was with him. Well, back in chapter 3, these three boys did the same thing. They purposed that they weren't going to bow down. It wasn't an issue. Doesn't make it easy. Doesn't make the decision easy. Oftentimes the decision may be more difficult but it was right, and it was internally motivated. They didn't just decide on the spot to do this. Now, here's some other things we don't know. We don't know if they knew ahead of time about this thing, or if Nebuchadnezzar just brought everybody out there and then surprised them all. We don't know if they had time to gather together, the three of them, and talk about it. We don't even know if they were standing together. They may have been separated in different parts of of the crowd. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. The only thing we do know is that they stayed standing and they refused to bow. What decisions have you made that are internally determined, not externally pressured to do? Are you internally motivated not to cheat in class? Are you internally motivated to do your own work? Are you internally motivated not to defraud someone sexually? Are you internally motivated in those kinds of areas and in other areas? Or is it pressure from others not to do it? You see, we need to be men and women who are We need to be men and women who are internally motivated 
and determined to make our decisions, not just let them happen. Second principle is don't lose your mic, I think. There. Second principle, a conviction does not require that other people stand with you in order to make your stand. A conviction is something that doesn't require somebody else to be with you in order for you to make your decision. Have you ever been with a group of your friends and they wanted to go somewhere or do something and you really didn't think it was the right thing to do and yet you caved in and went with them? You see, if it's God ordered for you, then what do other people have to do with it? It doesn't matter whether they stand or don't stand with it. You're going to do what you know is the right thing to do. That's conviction. Sometimes we make a decision because we're afraid of the consequences. That's a preference. That's not conviction. A conviction doesn't worry about consequences either. Even though the decision is a very difficult one, even though we may be scared to death to make the decision, an internally motivated decision doesn't demand anybody else to stand with us to make that decision. We'll do it on our own. These three young boys, no older than you, may have been standing all apart in this crowd, and yet they... They didn't know if anybody else was going to stand. They knew they had to stand and stay standing. We need men and women who are willing to stand alone if necessary to do what God wants us to do. The third principle. A conviction is non-negotiable. If you can sit down and discuss the events, the situation, the ramifications, the results, the consequences, if you can sit down and discuss it with the idea of making a decision about it, then it's a preference, it's not a conviction. How do you negotiate what is God-ordered? Our moral decisions don't change because God's made them. Look at verse 13 of chapter 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar responded, and he said to these three, Is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, you've got to realize, he has now called these three young boys out to the front of the crowd in front of everybody else. All the other people are watching. All the officers, the officials of his government are watching. He brings these three and puts them right down in front of him and he says, is it true that you haven't done this? Now, verse 15, if you're ready, at the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, and the bagpipe, and all the other kinds of music, I want you to fall down and worship the image and that'll be okay. You know what he did? He blew it right there. As a leader, 
He had already said, if anybody doesn't bow down, what's to happen to them? They are, according to verse 6, immediately going to be thrown into the furnace. And now he gives them a second chance. What do you think all of his other leaders are doing saying to themselves? Wow, he gave them a second chance. I guess maybe I can do that and get a second chance sometime. Maybe the respect for him isn't as high. So he gives them a second chance and he says, now I want you to fall down. If you fall down, everything's going to be okay. But if not, you're going to be thrown into the furnace of fire. And what do they say in verse 16? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this. They were very respectful, very reverent. But they said, it doesn't matter how many times you ask us. The answer is the same. We don't need to give you an answer. Now remember, everybody else is watching this scenario go on. Can you imagine what Nebuchadnezzar's feeling? He's losing the battle. And everybody's watching him lose the battle. A conviction is non-negotiable. They could have asked them 300 times. It wouldn't have mattered. The, the answer would be the same. Now, I have never faced the pressure of getting thrown into a fire alive. I would... Threat of jail, threat of a lawsuit. Have we changed our decisions? Have we negotiated those moral decisions because of that? If we have, it's a preference. It's not a conviction. A conviction is non-negotiable. Consequences, as I said before, often cause us to change. Consequence should never be the determiner of what we decide. It should be the Scriptures. This is the determiner. Not what happens to us, which leads us to a fourth principle. And that is that a conviction could make the future unknown. A conviction could make the future unknown. Look at verses 17 and 18. Here's what these three college-age kids said. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. You see, they had already thought this through, and they said, you know, I'm in a win-win situation. I'm either going to heaven, or I'm getting out of the fire. Either way, I've won. Either way, I'm not serving the God. I'm not serving that image. I'm not bowing down. Either way, I've won. They couldn't lose. That's great thinking. Leon Wood paraphrased verse 18 this way. He says, If our God can find it possible to deliver us in terms of what He sees best, then He will. And they said, But even if He does not, even if He chooses not to deliver us, even if He chooses us to go into the fire and to die, 
be it, let it be known, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And these three young men are saying this in front of the entire crowd to the greatest king, the greatest Gentile king in the history of the world. That's conviction, folks. Well, their second chance, of course, is now denied. It says that Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his face got all scrunched up because he was so angry and he turned red. And he got irrational and he said to heat the first furnace seven times hotter than what it was normally. Now, again, I'm not an expert in these things, but to me, fire is fire and fire is always hot. I don't know what it means to heat the first furnace seven times hotter but I guess you can actually make a fire hotter or colder, cooler. If he had been rational, he would have made the furnace cooler so they would have suffered longer. But he made the furnace hotter, whatever that is. To me, it's still pretty hot. And he commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them in. Can you picture that in your own mind? These men then were tied up with all their clothes. And, and it says in verse uh, 23, they were thrown into the furnace of blazing fire tied up. So they must have been, because the furnace you know, was pretty big, had an opening at the top, they were probably dropped in. And the furnace was so hot that it killed, it burned, all the warriors that dropped the, the three men in. So Nebuchadnezzar is sitting there in front of all of his officials, the hundreds or so, and he's watching this and all of a sudden he is astounded, absolutely astounded because he sees four people in there. So he quickly asks his officials, how many did we throw in? And he said, three. He says, how come I see four? Well, you all know who the fourth one is, the pre-incarnate Christ, the one who is with us in all of our trials. So then in verse 26, he, he comes near to the door of the furnace and he responds and he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God. He has just admitted defeat. In front of all of his officials, he's just admitted defeat because he has, he has called their God the Most High God. That is a term for strength. That is a term for power. That is what Lucifer wanted to be. He wanted to be like the Most High when he wanted to be like God before he became Satan. So, he says, come out. So they came out. And it says, all these officers were looking on. And it says, the fire had absolutely no effect on their clothing. Any of you been involved or around a fire after it's burned something and you, you smell it? You can't get that smell out. You have to get a new carpet. You've got to repaint your walls. Whatever you do, you've got to... You got to change. Here it says there was no smell on them. The only thing that was burned was the ropes. 
So Nebuchadnezzar responded and he said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command. He was humble enough to recognize that God was greater than he. And then he makes a decision, he makes a decree that anybody that says anything bad about this God is going to die in their houses, is going to be reduced to a rubbish heap. doesn't mean you can't worship any other God, it just means you can't say anything bad about this God. Now, I don't believe Nebuchadnezzar became a believer in this chapter, but I do believe he became a believer in chapter 4 after he became a beast for seven years. This leads us to the fifth principle. The fifth principle is that a conviction will always show up in a person's lifestyle. A conviction will always show up in a person's lifestyle. Show me what's on the outside and I'll show you something on the inside. And over time, it is consistent. A person who is convicted on the inside will demonstrate that in their life on the outside. Now it says in verse 30, the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. You know, we never hear about them again. They're only mentioned twice in the Bible, chapter 1 and chapter 3. That's it. Never hear about them again. And yet, what tremendous principles and what a tremendous example they were to us. Let me summarize what we said. Are you and I seeking to be men and women who are committed to the Word of God, convicted in making moral and spiritual decisions based upon the absolute standard that the Word of God is? Do we determine those or do we just sort of fall into them or discover them? Are we willing to stand alone on these decisions or do we need others to verify that they are indeed good decisions? Are our moral decisions unchangeable or do we change because of consequences or because of pressure of others? Do we recognize that our future may be jeopardized because of what we believe, because of our convictions? And are our decisions, are our convictions evident in our life? Can people look at you, each one of you, and say there's a man of conviction, there's a woman of conviction, there's somebody who seeks to live by the Word of God? Boy, that's our goal, isn't it? That's my, my prayer, my hope. I trust it is yours. And I would encourage you, exhort you, to be men and women of conviction. Shall we pray? Our Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the principles that it gives us. We thank you for these three men, men of tremendous conviction, who are willing to stake their lives to obey you. May we be the same.
May we be men and women who are willing to do what you say and not cave into the pressure of others. And may our lives reflect a God-honoring obedience to you. And we'll thank you and say how much we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.